You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Daniel Gasteiger, author of Yes, You Can, and Freeze and Dry It, Too. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Um, I was really, you know, I'm such a nerd that I, when I started canning 30 or so years ago, I had these big tomes, you know. You, know, you, you probably have them in your library, too, the big old stocking up book that's about 500 pages and tells you how to make borscht. I do have that one, a very old <laughs> copy of it, um, and yeah. I enjoy looking at it sometimes and, and thinking it's a, it's amazing so many people survived it. So. <laughs> well, yes, there were some methods in there that are no longer recommended. One of the things that struck me about your book, though, when I saw it is, my goodness, it's a skinny book compared to those. And then I started looking at it, and I was just amazed that you got it all said in in a light, easy way with lots of pictures, and you turned it what what could be. When I first started canning, if I hadn't watched my grandmother can and my mother, I would have been freaked out if somebody had just presented me with that big stocking up book because it was just too much. Well, I, I kind of agree, and I think a lot of what's in that book in particular is so um, pre-technology that you know, it just wouldn't make sense today. I mean, a lot of that involved holes dug in the ground and, and uh, well, maybe not quite that severe, but still it was it, storing fruits that it just wouldn't occur to you even to want to store anymore. I mean, why would you want to keep an apple in your basement for six months and then eat it? It just it, it, Even the thought kind of grosses you out, I think. So. Well, I don't know. I, I grew up with that. My grandmother had a root cellar. Of course, most of the apples went into applesauce sure. and into apple slices uh, that were canned for use later in pies. Right. Because, of course, my grandmother didn't have a freezer either, so everything was either preserved down in the root cellar or in cans, in jars. Well, I think and it I, really is, though, that, that notion that if you keep the, the piece of fruit just so, that it will still resemble the piece of fruit many months from now and, and uh, I guess it does resemble it but uh, it's not a real compelling thing to do today when you can walk into a grocery store and find fruit that was just harvested a few days ago and shipped in from 2,000 miles away so yeah well I was, that was yeah that, and that's a point too because it's not environmentally friendly to go buy something that's shipped in from 2,000 miles no, and that's one of the arguments I make in the book, that, yeah, if you can avoid bringing stuff from those distances, you're helping out. And uh, But at the same time, I still just can't see myself. I mean, I suppose if things got bad and I, I we ended up in a survivalist situation, which is a, a pretty popular uh, subculture of preserving, uh, you know, I might be considering <laughs> storing all kinds of things that I wouldn't store now. But uh, but still, with modern canning and dehydrating and pickling and so on, uh, you have some pretty decent food that you can keep for a long, long time. So uh, the idea of having to preserve it so that it still resembles the original fruit um, six months from now, I think, is, is perhaps overblown. So. Well, of course... Yes, when we'd go down to the 
seller to go get apples, you know, come March or April or so. They were they were wrinkled, certainly, um, and they but they were and they were kind of mealy. Yep. But they were sweeter than usual because they'd already sort of started dehydrating on their own. And, and, and I uh, think you get used to it. I mean, I, I talk about that kind of thing in the book, not not specifically with regards to preserving uh, fruits as you know as whole fruit over time. But um, when I started preserving peaches at home it, by canning them, um, and I'd grown up eating canned peaches, I thought they were fine. But my wife tried them and thought they were really gross. And the, the difference was that I, you know, with years of experience of eating the somewhat mushy canned peach, to me that was normal. And I actually don't care for commercially canned peaches that tend to be firm and not as flavorful. My wife, on the other hand, you know, thinks of a canned peach as firm and not flavorful, but that's normal to her. And when she tried a mushy, home-canned, sweet, uh, very peachy peach, it, it just sort of didn't appeal to her texturally. So so I don't bother with those anymore. <laughs> but, I mean, if I you're used you. to a mushy apple in March, then so what, right? I mean... Yeah. Now, did your, did your wife ever acquiesce to canned pears? Um, I canned think pears I only are, canned fruit, like, like stone fruit type things, um, one season because, the, you know, there was just such a disparity for her. And I, I will admit to... Uh, Certain fruits, like pears, well, pears especially, um, enjoying the fact that I can get them from somewhere else off-season. Um, that's, that's, it's really hard for me to turn up that fresh fruit or that, that recently harvested fruit in exchange for a, a canned pear. So, so th- there are a few where, where I still break the rules. Um, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed the canned pears that we put up at the farm. And when I had my first store-bought canned Bartlett pear, I just thought it was gritty and tasteless and oh, just yeah. awful. Ooh. But no, again, but, but I mean, I do, I do love a home canned pear. They're they're awesome, um, but the commercial ones, I agree. It's just like, why would you do that? So, yeah, and that, one of the things that always upsets me is that a lot of kids today grow up and they don't even know what real food tastes like because they've had it from a can where they throw in the calcium chloride and way too much sugar, and if they're even eating fruit. Well, I, I guess you know that my passion is trying to, to get people to know more about real food. I love that you use that term so easily, real food. Um, you know, if you, I, I found a photo online about two years ago that where someone must have climbed up on the top shelf of a food storage unit in a grocery store at one end and took a photo across the whole length of the store and you see all these shelves with all this stuff on them and I I challenge people to find anything in that photo that actually looks like food and and that's where we shop <laughs> and, and it's just I mean it's just crazy that uh, you know you can find more stuff in a grocery store that doesn't resemble food than that does resemble food yeah, especially if you're in those middle aisles. If you're around the outside edge of the store, you usually get more real food. You know, you get your produce and you get your meat and you get your dairy, and it's less of the highly processed things. And that's true. And, and sadly, even even then, um, a lot of vegetables, maybe not fruits so much, but a lot of vegetables lose nutritional value as, as they sit off the plant 
and before you eat them. So you'll see these ads on television now from some of the producers where they'll say, uh, you know, frozen the day of harvest. Mm -hmm. And they're telling you that because more savvy consumers understand if you don't preserve them the day you harvest them, the next day they some some uh, vegetables can have lost 50% of their nutrition. Um, and, and certainly when you see trucks full of beans driving down the highway, you know that by the time they reach a store or a processing plant, they're simply not going to be as nutritious as if you had just harvested them that morning and put them in the freezer. So. Though I did read something interesting that said that um, grocery store greens, if they're kept under lights, actually increase in nutrition. Oh, well, that's After four days. Of course, that's one thing that you're not um, actually going to can. Or <laughs> I, suppose, right. I suppose you might freeze some of them. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of freezing greens because it's a whole lot easier in the middle of winter just to grab a package of frozen spinach. You know, well, admittedly, we're not, is... we're, we're not real fond of, uh, of any kind of cooked greens at my house. So, you know, when I have cooked spinach, for example, um, I tend to be the only one who eats it. Um, though the more I've gotten into Indian cooking, the less that's been a problem. So, um, Well, sure. You, it's, I was surprised in Indian cooking how much spinach there was. Oh, it's amazing. And, I, I and, just, you, and when you look at some of it, you say, there's no way that's going to taste good. And then you uh-huh. taste it, and it's like a flavor you couldn't even describe, and it, it's just sensational. So. Well, you, you throw enough cumin and coriander and stuff, and it tends to taste pretty good anyway, I think. <laughs> this but is yes, true. It, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. When I first had Indian food, I, I really, you know, I was kind of ordering and not knowing very much what I was ordering and trying to make sure that my sister and brother weren't teasing me about it because I'm the youngest in the family, and they've always teased me about food. And uh, so I ended up with some stuff that I, it looked a little strange. But boy golly, was it good. It was just amazing. And I would never have thought that that much spinach with a little bit of fresh cheese on it would be good. Well, I live, you know, in a very rural part of Pennsylvania where the nearest good Indian food is about an hour's drive. And, uh, you know, it kind of forced me. Well, it didn't force me, but if I wanted Indian food, the only practical way to get it was to learn to cook it myself. So, so yeah, I've... I've uh, I really enjoy taking the the curry out of the pan, throwing it in a blender to to get it smooth and creamy, and then uh, finishing it off and uh, serving it and seeing. I mean, fortunately, we have some friends from India and Pakistan, and they're good with it. But there's always someone around where we're sort of like, no, really, try it. It looks different, but you might like it. And uh, and and usually you see the lights go on. It's it's fun. So. But, but as you say, curry, I mean, the house smells delightful for about a day after you cook a good mm-hmm. curry. So, Well, I was only, I'd had Indian food at restaurants around here, and it was eh, so-so. It wasn't great, but my sister has a restaurant near her in Richmond that is just absolutely outrageous. It was so fantastic. So now I'm cooking my own curries and things like that and enjoying it, too. Well, it makes me wish maybe I'd given a little more attention to preserving greens in the book. Um, but I think I, I give the nod to, uh, boy, it's been a long time since I've looked at that. I think I give the nod to preserving or to freezing um, spinach in there. I 
don't remember. I'll have to look it up when we take a break. <laughs> <Same here. laughs> I have your book in front of me because I was just so, Im- you know, I don't get impressed by books a lot. You know, I've been reading for 60 years, and, and after 60 years, you see a lot of re- repetition. But sure. when I saw this, I, I just I was just blown away by it. It's simple. It's easy, very well laid out. It's got little tips here and there, um, and it's it, you don't order people around. <laughs> you know that well, some well, of like the USDA books, you must do it this way, and you say you tell them why, and then say do it this way. Well, I'm, I'm you know. glad that that it hit on those notes because because um, you're kind of describing the sensibilities I brought to it that. Uh, uh, I mean, honestly, this this book wasn't my idea. Uh, I don't know if I've told that story in public. No, I, you, well, I guess have. I have, um, but I, I don't I don't <laughs> put it in those terms. But but uh, I was on social media in the days when you know social media was still fresh and 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 kind of exciting, and and I had gotten to know the publisher of Cool Springs Press online, and one day he he tweeted um, that they were interested in doing a book on canning, and could anyone write it for them. And I think I might be the only one who said yes uh, at that time, anyway. And uh, but, but I had a book contract with him about a week later. And and the the thing of it was, it started with with his question was their desire to do a book on on canning. And my first the first words out of my mouth more or less were, well, does it have to be just canning? Can we talk about uh, many methods of preserving? But then more than that, I I really didn't want to do a book like the ones you've described. You know, there are so many books on preserving that are black on white, and we're going to we have to take a little break here. They they have. I'm sorry. I I I just said we have to take a little break, but I'm fascinated by this whole process. So when we come back, um, I'd I'd like to hear a little bit more about it and how you how you talk them into it. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies, and we'll be back right after this break. Listen to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I'll guide our discussion on a fresh, news-based energy topic, only on America's Web Radio. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Daniel Gastiger, and the author of Yes, You Can, and Freeze and Dry It Too. And just before the break, Daniel was telling us how he actually kind of fell into writing this book um, by with social media, and that they contact, Cool Springs Press contacted you to do it, 
and you were able to talk them into doing pictures and I, that's an awful lot of color for a book these days well and that and that was the deal was that um as, as i was saying I, I looked at the books um that were out there or the ones that were popular anyway and they were so gray and and they had line drawings for the most part there, there were i don't think i saw any with photos yeah that was probably about when the blue book uh was going photographic or maybe they had already but that was one of the few and and everything else was so gray and uh i loved the content of those books but i i had grown up in the magazine industry and so when when we started talking about what this could look like i kind of laid out in it you know just in words well I'd, I'd like it to be more like a magazine um where you know there's a main discussion but there's all kinds of digressions where you can go and pick up a little tidbit here a little tidbit there and and instead of just telling what to do let's show them what to do and and there was a lot of yes 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 from the other end of the phone i was like oh this is this is great um but i honestly went away not believing that that's what we'd end up with um and and then uh, i started writing and they took some of what i wrote and they they did a layout and they sent me the the layout and i looked at it and i said oh my goodness this is and i was just odd that they had pretty much nailed it that, that this was what i'd had in mind and uh so i, I want to give a lot of credit to their the art person i don't actually know who that was <laughs> but you know obviously the book wouldn't be what it is if they didn't have a brilliant designer to to turn the idea into you know visual effects so well it certainly worked and i like also that as you mentioned it's not just about well, canning we talked about with about canning last week with our guest Michelle Melton from the University of Georgia Extension Service. She's a family and consumer oh. science agent, <laughs> and and she's she's up and fun with canning too. But canning does have a lot of rules, and if you're canning more than tomatoes and fruit and pickles, um, it can get pretty scary for a beginner. But you kind of ease people into. Um, food preservation and, and it's funny that you mentioned um, that you didn't like the idea much of cold storage because that's the first couple of chapters in your book is about cold storage well well admittedly um there are awesome uses for cold storage i, I think admittedly is the wrong word I, I mean i acknowledge there's just awesome uses for cold storage but there's places where i think people use cold storage out of a perceived necessity that simply doesn't exist anymore and and th- so i do draw a line i mean potatoes you know kept well are going to be virtually indistinguishable in may from what they were when you harvested them they do tend to soften up but stored well they they soften imperceptibly um you know i mean of course garlic winter squash amazing you know i have winter squash still in cold storage right now that i harvested last october and you can't tell you can't tell that they i didn't just bring them in from the garden yesterday so so there are things that i i mean it's clearly of course you should use cold storage it would be silly to process and so on because it's just that much extra work um but again you know an apple or a pear or whatever that's going to turn all mealy and and different in 3 to 6 months i just don't i wouldn't go there so 
Um, so, and I think the book reflects that too, that it, it pretty clearly emphasizes root vegetables and, and winter squash. And what I've learned, it does. what I've learned since then, I just over last winter, I harvested a zucchini that had gotten away from me. So it was a, a absolutely mature fruit and probably in early October, mid October. And I brought it inside and I thought, wow, you know, I, I, these are, not what we aspire to as gardeners. <laughs> but, you know, I'll harvest seeds from it eventually. So I'll just set it aside until I'm ready to harvest the seeds and dry them out. And I set it with my winter squash. And I, I, I'm not kidding, easily four, three months later anyway, three and a half months later, it it looked unchanged. It's like, oh my goodness, it's not really summer squash. We just use it that way. <laughs> that that these squashes are just as durable as what we call winter squash, but we've been socialized, as it were, to eat them when they're young and tender. And, and I, now, I, I, I saw your video, and I have uh-huh. to ask, really, how much texture change was there from a fresh squash? Absolutely none by the time I prepared that particular squash. Um, uh-huh. there, I probably uh, stored three zucchinis of different, you know, very mature, but not necessarily completely mature. And some of them just started changing yellow. And there was some uh, shrinking, you know, the skin started to to, uh, develop that pruny look. But even those were okay. I mean, they were definitely softer. But that one large one that that I stored that was unchanged by the time I prepared it after maybe three and a half months, you wouldn't have known. I mean, if I had served you that instead of a fresh squash from the garden, the only thing to distinguish it would have been that I would have peeled the old one because you don't want to eat that thick, heavy rind that forms when you let them age. So, honestly, you couldn't tell. Someone, someone asked me once when I was doing a talk at a, at a garden club, they said, uh, did it, what did it taste like? And I, and I said, well, you know, like, Nothing like zucchini. <laughs> I mean, to me, well, zucchini. Well, that's an accurate is, description of zucchini. Right, it's like so nothing. flavorless that that it's whatever seasonings you you provide that you're tasting. So, and it really was. It was just perfect zucchini. Um, so anyway, I, I keep learning things um, by doing, and you know, maybe someday I will be putting more in cold storage than I'm willing to now. I don't know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, it is hard. It is hard to do cold storage in today's modern homes, unless you live up north. I, you know, one of the places I lived in was a 150-year-old barn and blacksmith shop that had been converted into a duplex, and Ooh, we had a great awesome. place for cold storage down sure. there with the stone walls and everything. Sure. But in a modern house, it's hard to maintain a temperature that low. It's you know you can keep it cool for things like potatoes, but to keep it very cold for cabbage. Yeah, I think that's maybe a little tough to do. Well, and even this, this, just the term cold storage can be misleading to people. You know, when you say uh, winter squash in cold storage, ideally cold is no lower than 50 degrees, and, and 60 degrees is fine, and, and room temperature in a typical northern house, zone six-ish house, is probably okay. I mean, I, I have, like I said, I still have... Two, three, three large Cinderella pumpkins that are squash, um, and they're not Cinderella; they're fairy t- fairy tale squash that I harvested last year, that are in my office where I work every day, and they're firm and perfect. So, you oh, know, so that's room person... temperature. That's not cold storage. <laughs> 
I've always found that storing them like under the sofa or something like that works perfectly well. Sure. Or, or as I always joke, you know, roll them under the bed in the guest bedroom. <laughs> Be- because yeah. if you're if there's any room you're not heating, it's probably the guest bedroom. So that that's a good tip for people. We keep our bedroom pretty cool too, and so underneath our bed works pretty well, and it's easier to get into than the guest bedroom. There you <laughs> go, and, and that works great. Storage, and that works great unless you have a pet that will chew on squash when it finds it under your bed. So, well, I have nine cats, and they haven't. They, they will pick tomatoes and grab them off the countertop, but they haven't yet tried to eat my squash. Uh, yeah, we, and, we and added a puppy. We added a puppy that ate our squash. So, <laughs> well, uh, when we had dogs, we also had problems with things like that too. <laughs> Annie especially would like to grab the squash by the neck and carry it through the house, bumping it against the walls, racing back and forth. Ah, and special. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty hard on a plant. Yeah, it's probably time to put that one into a uh, dinner after the dog's yeah. done with it. So. Or in our case, it goes to the chickens. You've got just about everything in your garden but chickens, don't you? You haven't jumped on the chicken bandwagon? There seems to be a chicken cabal that that thinks someday I'm going to have chickens. And maybe it'll happen. I don't know. <laughs> I am I am very fond of them. I've visited friends who, uh, you know, make me pose with their chickens in their gardens. And I go away wishing to have my own. But... Uh, so recently I haven't been around enough that they would have been not well cared for. So we'll see where it goes, though. It'll happen someday, I think. <laughs> well, I've had chickens for about 30 years, and I'm kind of getting chickened out. Yeah. You know, this last winter when it was so cold and so icy and having to carry gallons of water from the house down there because the outside faucets were shut down for the winter, that just, you know, at my age, it's just getting <laughs> to be a little too much. Well, and but I you need to have chickens. <laughs> well, I understand you need, you know, this is not for the, the soft-hearted. If you see ch- having chickens as a financial benefit. Um, oh, it's not. And it's you're, a, not it's like willing, well, you're not willing to put them in the stew pot after several years. Um, no, it does, it's like doesn't having a boat. Out. Okay, there you like go. Or a, boat, <laughs> or a motorcycle, I suppose. It's, it's something that you have and you enjoy and you have fun with, but I don't eat my friends. Right. So, when they stop laying and start crowing, um, they just—they're just borders. <laughs> they're just there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I hear, and I, and I hear from both sides. I hear the people who are, you know, quite uh, traditional farmers, and they'll—they mm-hmm. enjoy the eggs, and then they have a nice chicken dinner. And I hear from yeah. the people who—I uh, mean, I actually know a woman whose chickens have their own bedroom in her house. So, oh. <laughs> uh, I'm sure she doesn't eat them when she's done with them. So. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't think so. I, I raised chicks in the in the dining room. My first batch of chicks um, had a we had a little laundry tub with a box in it, and we in the di- that we set in the dining room so I could keep an eye on them and they would be warm. But as mature chickens, no. Sure. That, that's a little much. <laughs> yeah. But well. you know, I, my grandparents had a farm, and we just learned not to, you know, don't name anything you're going to eat. Or my brother's philosophy along those lines is to name whatever you're going to eat with a name that suggests you're going to eat it. So he had chickens named Stew Pot and Fricassee and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, chickens chickens are good for a lot of things. I mean, besides the eggs and knowing where they came from, um, they also eat up your produce that's gotten too badly damaged by bugs and slugs or 
the, the zucchini, giant zucchini that got away with you? They love those seeds from the giant zucchini, and then they'll work their way out toward the, the rind once they finish mm-hmm. the seeds. Huh. Yeah. So it, it cuts down on food costs a lot. Oh, sure. Well, well I understand they'll keep the bugs down in the garden, but you kind of have to watch them because if they get bored with the bugs, they'll go after your plants too. So. Well, they, well, and they scratch around a lot. Well, we can talk a little bit more about having chickens. Maybe I can talk you into having them uh, <laughs> when we come back from from this break. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be back right after this. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Daniel Gasteiger, and we are having just too good of a time talking about raising chickens and canning and preserving vegetables. And right before the break, we were talking about the beauty of chickens and how fun it is and how what good insect control they can be, as well as clearing up your extra produce. And Daniel said during the break that I'd have to convince his wife, so maybe she can listen to this and, and find out. Now, what's your biggest pest in the garden? Do you have ticks? Do you have grasshoppers? You know... Uh, grasshoppers. Pretty much. I mean, insect-wise, this year it's been Japanese beetles, of all things, but, but uh, the biggest problems that I have with my garden are... Uh, more like bacterial and fungal diseases. Uh, Early blight was pretty nasty this year, and late blight just came on strong about two weeks ago. And and, and I I, I need to do some research because I can't grow spinach. It'll come up, it'll put out a couple leaves, and then it'll just wilt away in a few days. Does it turn yellow and die? Um, perhaps I just haven't paid that much attention. So, like I said, I need, uh, do you, do you know what what would be doing this? Well, there there is a, a yellow disease that can cause that, and in a small garden, which I understand you you have a small garden, it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to get away from it. Sometimes the uh, other thing that happens to spinach very often is if you go from cool to very hot, it that will happen. Yeah, that's definitely not not been the problem. This is a very consistent thing that that every time I've tried to grow spinach for the last oh, five or six years, um, I simply haven't gotten a harvest. So um, I uh, vowed I wouldn't grow it this year, and I still tried, and it still died. So. Well, I will I will look that up. I've got something well, in the back of my you, head. No, like I said, problem. I need to do some research. I, I wasn't looking. I just wondered if you were familiar <laughs> with it. Well, it's been a long time since I gardened up north, 
I uh, lived in New Jersey for quite a number of years. And you've got different diseases up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania than we sure. do down here. Sure. And, you know, one of which is fusarium. And I'm thinking that fusarium might be one of the things that spinach gets up there. We don't get fusarium, or excuse me, verticillium. We do get fusarium. Uh-huh. Um, and, boy, the, the blights this year were just just amazing, weren't they? Yeah. Oh, what a year for blight. I mean, I, I visited a lot of community gardens, and I I always wonder, like, why wouldn't uh, if I were running a community garden, I'd have two very uh, harsh rules. One would be you may not plant mint in the ground, mm-hmm. and and the other would be if you're growing tomatoes and their relatives, you must treat them prophylactically to prevent blight. Because every community garden I visited this year, there is blight both early and late. And it's it's disheartening if you know if one person doesn't treat, now you're well, creating the, a little reservoir to feed the rest of it. So. But the spores are just so ubiquitous. Yes, um, they and are. And late blight from late blight in particular from that uh, brought in stuff a couple of years ago when this what was uh, that like 2009 infected, I think it was infected tomato plants got right. shipped all over the East Coast. Right. And then you get the weather that we've had. At one point in my garden, I had early and late blight and septoria mm. because our weather was so it was so wet. It would go cold and wet, which favored the late blight. It would right. go warm and wet, which right. favored the early blight. It was just, I, I can't imagine any year as bad as this year and last year. And last year, it rained just about every dang day. And isn't it ironic that um, we experienced gardeners so often encourage people to grow tomatoes as one of their first crops? It's like, oh, yeah, try tomatoes, because they're so good when you grow your own. At the same time, of all the plants I would think of off the top of my head to recommend, tomatoes are, are the most likely to cause, you know, to, to die on you and your gardener, or at least to go really wrong really fast. Um, and so it's an interesting, I mean, you really want people to taste that homegrown tomato. But are we setting people up for disappointment now Now that blight seems to happen every single season? Well, maybe they'll get lucky and we'll have a decent <laughs> weather year. <laughs> I don't know. When I, was, when I was a first-time gardener, I had all of my mother's old gardening books, and there was one from the 30s that said, talked about vegetables hard to grow. Um, the, the biggest one on the list was um, was cucumbers and members of the squash family. Really? And you remember for years and years, everybody was growing squash, and it was they had squash out the wazoo. And you know, from a couple of cucumber plants, there were they were pickling all summer long. Sure. And people were running away from them because, you know, when they see them on the street with their arms full right. because they had so many. And now in the last few years, between the mildews and the lack of bees, they've become hard to grow again. But when I was first growing cucumbers and squash, it was a no-brainer. Interesting. So I think I... a lot of it is is cultural and I thought for a while it was maybe varietal, but I've been this year I've been growing, you know, some of the old-fashioned ones, and they're having the same problem. 
Well, uh, cucumbers are in that realm. Of, I mean, pretty much, how do you pronounce it? I, I always get it wrong. Cucurbits, or is it cucurbits? Um, but in that it's realm whatever of you, squashes, pumpkins, uh-huh. cucumbers, yep. that whole family of, of vegetables, um, I pretty much tell people flat out, look, don't leave it to nature. When when there are flowers on the plants, get out there and hand pollinate. And uh, even cucumbers, which have such tiny flowers, um, I've been hand pollinating this year and last year, and uh, they seem to deliver a pretty good crop when you do that. Um, it is kind of a pain because handling those tiny little flowers and transferring the pollen. And they're prickly. Well, they're very prickly. <laughs> well, the flowers aren't, but the vines no, but, are. When but you, you, you should your hand in there. Uh, we probably don't have to handle the stems all that much to get to the flowers. <laughs> But yeah, I, I find. But, but, yes. but, but your point is well taken. I I was not successful with cucumbers for maybe the first two years I grew them, and and I came to them late because I'm not a real fan of raw cucumbers. But for the book, of course, I wanted to talk about pickling, and I kind of got hooked then. Um, and uh, so now I try to grow at least enough each year to do one good batch of bread and butter pickles, and. Uh, and like I said, getting out there to do the pollination, hand pollinating, gives me a pretty reliable outcome. So, Well, and you know, there are parthenocarpic cucumbers now, and that's a big, long word that basically says it's self-pollinating or doesn't need a pollinator to produce fruit. I haven't met and, those yet. <laughs> uh, Diva is one, and I think Sweet Success or Sweeter Yet are, are both... Um, Parthenocarpic. They, you don't have to crawl around and hand pollinate them. Uh-huh. What what we're seeing a lot down here in the south, though, is mildew, powdery mildew, sure. shiny mildew, sure. mostly powdery. Um, so most of the gardening friends that I know of now are using a preventive milk spray, and I'm going to start doing that next year too. As and as they come I think out. this is kind of where gardening is taking us now, vegetable gardening anyway. But I, but you hear it with the ornamentals as well. That that uh, if you you know you kind of just should anticipate that certain diseases are likely to show up because you know what they, they've certainly hit more years than they haven't over the past five years. So you know get find yeah. the stuff i mean I, I encourage people always to look for organic treatments first and and uh, it can be pretty surprising what's considered organic i mean you can use copper sulfate and still mm-hmm. maintain an organic certification and that stuff is is kind of toxic so um but you know if you're applying it from when the plants are young chances are you're going to get a really decent crop out of your your tomatoes and and uh, you, you know probably don't have to treat peppers and and eggplant but they are oh well potatoes obviously they're all susceptible um, you just see it more on tomatoes and, and potatoes so um, yeah but, I, but, I, I think mean, you know had... you know people succeed right because farmers are still selling tomatoes so. <laughs> It's possible. Yeah, most years, most years, I've <laughs> talked to some that some farmers that I know, and I remember one year when when late light first arrived in our county. I was working for the extension office, and we left for Fourth of July weekend, and everything was fine. We'd had a beautiful spring, and there was no problem. And it started raining that evening, and it drizzled and was cold all the way through the fourth. And we got back to the office the following, I guess, Tuesday. And the phones were ringing off the hook. And mm-hmm. one farmer said, you know, his garden looks like somebody had poured, poured used motor oil on it, and it stinks. That's and we amazing. went out to look, and his whole field was wiped out in three days. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. Well, was, so, and was he maintaining a prophylactic treatment? I mean, was it? No, because it had never been. We, we didn't because, have late light down here. Right. We're normally too oh, hot really? for late light. Oh, yeah. I'm so late sorry you're was, getting it. Yeah, late light was a problem in in our northern garden, of course. Right. But down right. here, it's normally hot and wet, and early blight is our our I problem. See. And early blight is, you know, fairly easy to control if you mulch so that you don't get soil splash. Right. And remove the lower leaves of the yeah. plants so that you know that the, the anything that has splashed up isn't going to get them. Um, and that was that was all. And yeah. we're, we're guarding in a different age. And I know some people that are going almost exclusively now to high tunnels, even if they don't need them for heat, hmm. but just to get them, well, that, just that to get certain rain slow it down. Yeah, yeah. I had so. such the same experience that that I went. Uh, was it three years ago now? I went to the uh, Garden Writers Association annual conference, which must have been in August that year, and everything was hunky dory when I left. And it's, you know, like a four-day conference, and, and uh, I came back, and I have a blog post about it. It was just disheartening that, that late blight had hit while I was away, and it was on, you know, basically the garden was done. Well, the, the tomatoes were done. So, um, But, yep. you, you know, you can still see the three bushels of fruit on your plants that you're never going to be able to harvest, and it's very sad. Well, you do learn very quickly how to make green tomato relish <laughs> when that happens. <laughs> and you know, there's only tomatoes. so much relish we use in our house. <laughs> well, I, yeah, guess, yeah, fancy, I guess you need you a lot of fancy, friends. <laughs> yeah, you put a fancy label on it and one of those little little cloth calico cloth hoodies, and you give it out for Christmas time, and that's sure. about the only thing that you can do. Sure. But I think we are entering a new age of different gardening problems that we haven't experienced or maybe it's just a maybe we're back to the point in time where my my mother's old book did say that some of these vegetables are more difficult to grow and well well, you have we just had a a lucky few decades you have the experts who who kind of blame the victims and and you know there's some justification in it they say well you know gardeners now are putting such emphasis on all these heirlooms that weren't bred ah. to be resistant <laughs> to diseases and stuff like that. And, okay, that is true. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're also, so if you, if you only select varieties that are bred against disease, you're not going to have a very interesting selection. So. That's true. And we've got to take a little break right here, but we'll come back and I'll tell you about an uh, old tomato, an heirloom tomato that I'm growing that is not diseased. We'll be right back oh, awesome. after this break. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. 
Thank you. God bless patriot conservatives. And God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Daniel Gasteiger, author of Yes, You Can, and Freeze and Dry It Too. And right before the break, we were talking about people's problems with diseases in their plants. And I have to tell you, um, Daniel, that I grew silets this year because all of my friends have been growing silets and haven't had any problem with um, late blight on it. And that's the one plant that's still standing in my garden. Huh. Well, so, I'll have to look it up and, and maybe try it out next year. <laughs> and, and what are you growing that you're seeing that's disease-resistant? Well, I mean, the, the, the toughest plant, uh, tomato-wise, is, is a variety called White Queen, um, which is hard to recommend. It's a large um, slicing tomato that, when it's fully ripe, is just white. And mm-hmm. the flavor's decent. I, I keep growing them because they're weird. Um, so this is probably my fourth generation. I, I harvest seeds every year. And then I also grow a paste tomato that's an indeterminate variety. I wish I could tell you the name, but I was given seeds by, a, or actually fruits by a farmer who said, save the seeds and grow them. You'll thank me. And they are sensational tomatoes, um, but I don't we know a variety. To, and, and they we may have to arrange a seed swap here. They they look uh, um, and and if I were to to say go look at tomatoes, the, this particular variety could very well be Cornu de Andes tomatoes, hmm. which are I understand are very popular in France. It's a it's a nearly seedless, very dry, uh, chili pepper shaped paste tomato, and hmm. they uh, they're they're delicious raw, but of course as paste tomatoes they you don't need as many to get a decent sauce out of them so. Sure, uh, and, and they seem pretty disease resistant. So. Have so. you grown any of the um, things like Iron Lady, the new hybrid disease resistant? Um, I have not. I've been uh, very much playing with hybrids the last many years. So, mm-hmm. um, if there's an H1 after the name, I'm I probably haven't grown it in in six or seven years. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have just in the last couple of years gone back to growing a few of. Um, the hybrid tomatoes, just because uh-huh. I would like to get a crop. Sure. And some of them, yeah, and some of them um, do do pretty well, like Iron Lady. I'm not that thrilled with the taste, but you know, you throw it in sauce with a lot of garlic and onion, and who cares? Pretty much. Um, but others, like Juliet, which had been a really high producer a few years back, um, this year was last, and last year too, got the late light really early. Wow. And succumbed. So, but I understand that late blight resistance is something that's very difficult to breed into a tomato line. I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, the most compelling stuff I've seen about late blight is all on uh, Cornell's Cooperative Extension website, Cornell mm-hmm. University's. They have a wonderful page telling you all about blight and, and how to treat and, and so on. And, and, uh, and they even had, I, I believe that was the website where they had a test plot showing five or six uh, organic treatments for late blight, and it was pretty discouraging. <laughs> so it's, uh, you, you just, 
you want you don't want to see it you don't want to see it on your plants when a, when a tomato gets that leathery dark lesiony look on the skin mm-hmm. it's just depressing so you know, sometimes our our tomatoes are going down so fast that you don't even see it really on the fruit. All you see is you walk sure. out there one day and yeah. your leaves are black and they're hanging limp and they yep. stink. They yep. smell like a rotten potato. It's and, of course, a, it is the same blight that killed off the Irish potatoes. Uh, and I've seen it in potatoes. Similar. And, man, I, can you imagine digging up your uh, hill of, if, if you want to call it that, a, a mound of potatoes uh, knowing this is what you're going to eat for the next many months, and it just comes out of the ground as a slimy, smelly mess. It's just. Have you uh, noticed how many potatoes? I don't know if you buy potatoes, but I do because my garden is in too much shade now to grow them very well. And um, the last three bags of potatoes that I've bought, there have been a couple of ones infested with late blight. Ooh. And if you don't get them out right away, yeah. you you get those nasty things that are kind of like fruit flies, only bigger mm-hmm. and slower, yeah. and they stink to high heaven. Ooh, I just had to toss one another one last week. And I these actually, are coming from commercial farms. Well, I actually buy from a grower who um, packages his unclassifiable tomato, or, sorry, potatoes in 20-pound bags and sells them for $4.00. So I run into the occasional ucky t- potato, um, but you know what? I, out of 20 pounds, I'm probably getting more than 18 usable pounds for $4. So. That's a really good deal. Yeah, it's a great deal. And and potatoes have definitely moved into the realm for me where I'm. if I grow them, it's just going to be a small little bit for uh, for curiosity more than I Like I grew purple potatoes this season mm-hmm. in containers. So, the, yep. you know, I know where the disease is if it happens. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it, it was, they're small potatoes. So I won't do it again. It's just not worth it. But, you know, maybe next year I'll do, I'll use the same containers and plant some Idaho's or something like that. And just, just is, is that even a brand, the the, uh, the elongated potatoes, or those are mm-hmm. called? Uh, some of the russets. Russets. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, but one thing that people really need to be aware of, and I'm sure you know, and sometimes you just say, well, the heck with it, I'll just keep an eye on it. But since it is, since we are getting a lot of sick potatoes at the grocery store, it's really better to buy certified seed if you can. And certainly if you're going to rely on potatoes for storing for the winter, oh, buy yeah. certified seed. No, I, I would definitely eye. steer you toward it. And now when people ask, well, can't, can't you grow from, from grocery store potatoes? Uh, you know, I'm honest. Uh, of course you can. Um, but the reason not to is that is that they're much more likely to be diseased. And, and if you buy certified seed, you're, you have a better chance of being successful. So, yeah. um, so I would say the same thing. And, and, and there's usually a store someplace nearby where you can buy seed potatoes at a reasonable price. So. Well, I guess it depends on where you where you live. We used to have a couple of them within ten miles of us, and now one of them has turned into this country boutique. Oh. <laughs> they just they used to have bulk seed and, and bulk certified potatoes and stuff, and and that's all gone now. And they, you know, incidification. Now, um, one of the things that we talked about you mentioned buying your potatoes, so you're not a purist there either. Um, you will buy in some stuff. When is it when people are canning? Um, when is it better to 
just pass up and buy store canned stuff as opposed to buying your own? Is there kind of a break-even point? Oh, wow, store canned stuff. See, now you're, you changed the paradigm a little bit. I'm buying fresh potatoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, do, what do I buy in a store? I tend to, to uh, if I'm buying canned goods, it's probably mostly legumes, um, because it's hard to, for especially when you have a small yard, it's hard to grow enough dry beans, yeah. <laughs> you know, to get your to get through a year. Um, especially if you're eating a lot of um, Indian cuisine um, sure. and, and, and South American cuisine. You know, you need the black beans, yeah. you need the red beans, you need the lentils, and so on. Um, lentils, I'll buy dry. But, I, I but, was thinking from the standpoint of um, people that don't have a garden, but they want to can something, uh, well, and they go out to the store or the farmer's market. Is, there, is it ever worthwhile unless you can get maybe coals? Um, I, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to get to. I would, I would offer that if you want to uh, consider your economics, it's kind of silly to can your own tomatoes because they're so inexpensive, factory canned. Um, Yet, (laughs) I can't stop doing it. So I've already put up like three gallons of of tomato sauce this year. Oh, that's a lot of boiling. And I'll probably do another vat of it starting today. Um, And I've done a lot of cut-up tomatoes as well. Um, You know, I think they taste better, but they're not so much better that by the time you've grown them and and done the preserving and so on, you know, at a crush and dent store, I can buy a 15-ounce can of tomatoes for about 60 cents. So yeah, it's a very low value. For, that. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's hard. So, so what I always encourage people when you're making decisions about what to grow and what you hope to preserve is look for the high cost, the high value foods that uh, won't challenge you too much. And, you know, raspberries, for example, Oh, yeah. um, cost a fortune. And so mm-hmm. it would be really smart to have a huge raspberry patch in your yard somewhere, except for the, the thorn. Though there are more and more thornless options available now. So. Yeah, though I've found that the thornless ones are pretty tasteless. You, you make a good point there. Go for the, the high-value food, the blueberries, the raspberries, the blackberries that cost a small fortune in the store. And some of the things that you can't, if you're going to grow them, um, and, and plan on freezing them, say, go for stuff that you really can't get that's as good, like fresh peas from your garden that are oh, frozen. Good. Oh, you frozen, know. Fresh, frozen fresh garden peas? Oh, my goodness. It's like they're almost indistinguishable from fresh out of the garden. And, and the same, well, not so much with, with beans, but... Uh, well, corn, but, too, if you think about oh, it, because corn. corn, if it's not processed right away it loses an awful lot of flavor and now corn is one where again you're because it takes a lot of space perhaps it makes more sense to buy it from a farmer and and what people or you know a farm stand or whatever and what people might miss if you've got if you're going to can it which i you know i don't think that's the best way but you know blanch it cut off the ears and freeze it you know give yourself a day where that's all you're going to do just 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 accept it and go to a farm market or a farmer or whatever and buy in bulk, like buy 50 ears, and there's a good chance you'll get it for some obscenely low price or, or 100 ears. I recently bought 100 ears of sweet corn for $15. Oh, 
Oh, my. Now, if I had bought 12 at a time, you know, I would have spent 60, I can't remember, I, I do the math. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. it would have been a, <laughs> okay. a whole lot more money <laughs> to get to 100 years. Um, yeah. I've got it. I've got it. We're going to have to close pretty soon. But I wanted to ask you: one of the recipes I saw in here for fresh corn off the cob is you dry it and then have it as a snack. It's amazing. It's a, I've it, never heard of that. It's just it, it's shocking. Actually, I think would be the best word I could use. Um, and that it doesn't you, break you the just, teeth when you eat it. You just cut it off the ears and you dry it, and it looks sort of like uh, you know what you the seeds you'd plant in the ground or something. It doesn't look mm-hmm. appetizing, but it's it's great. It's crunchy. It's and it tastes like fresh sweet corn. I'm going to have to try that. And and you're you're sure I'm not going to break a tooth on it or anything? Well, I haven't yet. Um, (laughs) Okay. No, it's really, you know, some things are astonishing. That's one of the things that that, uh, you can't recommend enough for preserving is that it leads to new foods. And, And that's, I think that's a big distinction between my book and many other books is that I really wanted to teach the methods. So you're armed and ready to do this, and you're comfortable getting there. Uh, a lot of the other books kind of blow through the methods really fast because they want to give you recipes. Well, okay, so start here to learn easily and to learn comfortably, and then look for those recipe books or do some research online, and you'll find so many foods that you're never going to get in a store that you know you might grow to cherish. Uh, you know, I can't stop making my mom's chili sauce. <laughs> I noticed that was one of the recipes in the book. Yeah. And, and I think that, and I've got, can't urge people enough. If you've got somebody in your life that's thinking about gardening or if you garden and you haven't tried canning or freezing or other home preservation, get Daniel's book. It's Yes, You Can and Freeze and Dry It Too. It, and you make the emphasis in the subtitle, The Modern Step-by-Step Guide to Preserving Food. It doesn't have to be drudgery. It doesn't have to be, you know, dig a hole in the ground to do your potatoes. And Daniel, where can people get hold of you? You have a you have a blog, a couple of blogs. Oh my goodness! Uh, right well, quick. the only blog that I'm taking good care of these days, and even that suffered because I've been busy with other things. But but I'm getting back to it now. Is uh, smallkitchengarden.net. Okay, smallkitchengarden.net is where you can find Daniel. And, Daniel, we've got to go for this week, but thank you so much for being with us, and I hope you'll come again. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure chatting with you. (laughs) Okay, great. Thank you, and we'll be back next week with more of America's Homegrown. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.